Today we began a series on a very important, critical topic. When we think about Reformation, and Johnny and I um, try really hard to stay focused on the lane that God has given us, and that is to awaken, equip, and connect Reformers like you all over the globe. And when we talk about Reformation, we're talking about Kingdom of God, Heaven on Earth, we're talking about bringing God's better ways into every area of, of culture and uh, believers who follow Jesus, displaying these seven different faces or aspects of who our God is in society. And, um, you know, if you're talking about the kingdom of God, you're also talking about the knowledge of God yes. filling the earth, the glory of God filling the earth, everybody having an opportunity to know not just who God is, but what he's like. And so we're all made in God's image. And in God's image, uh, we are called to display the fullness of who he is in every area of culture. So how on earth could we display the fullness of God in any area of culture if we don't have everybody on board, every nationality, every race, both men and women, with their full voice, their full expression, their unique expression of who God created them to be. And it's when we're all fully alive to the unique calling and purpose that we each have, and that we even have um, geographically in cities and nations, we, we all contribute something really unique when we talk about the kingdom of God coming to earth. So, in, in that context, we want to begin what we're calling a really uh, courageous conversation. We want to continue a conversation about racism, and specifically what we believe and what is obvious to us is systemic racism in our society. So I just want to start um, by first acknowledging you, Johnny. I, I, I know I'm your wife, and I, <laughs> I get to yes, tell you more awesome things about yourself, but but just as um, I, I feel like I'm speaking for a lot of people right now to just say thank you for your courageous voice in the middle of what's been going on this year, these storms that have come upon not just our nation, but the nations of the world, and we're unified in this, this collective um, awakening that's happening in the earth right now, and what, what are we awakening to? Uh, I'll quote you and say that, that you've said even before, I think, the beginning of this year, that this would be a year of a great awakening, but first there would be a rude awakening. I think we all have that in common. We have felt the rude awakening. Um, but these conversations specifically, we want to focus in on um, how we can have ongoing communication with our, our black brothers and sisters if that offends some of you, we'll say African-American. Part of a courageous conversation is understanding that um, there's an awkwardness. There's, a, there's an opportunity for a lot of offense because not one white person represents all white people and not one black person represents all black perspectives. And so that knowledge right up front that the things that Johnny and I talk about and even the, the upcoming interviews that we're going to give you an opportunity to listen to and view, um, you're not going to agree with everything. And that's not the point. We're, most of what we're going to talk about, we're not even trying to convince you of something. Our, our goal is to have conversations and to keep the conversation going so that um, the enemy does not steal and continue to steal the narrative of what God is awakening us to in our generation. And he's awakening us to things that he is empowering us to change, that he's empowering us to bring um, heaven on earth to. And so in heaven, I don't believe that there is just one face that we all look like. I believe that there are, there, are, there are the same beautiful, unique expressions. We'll all have our perfect bodies, but right. we'll have the perfect version of who we are here. Yes. And God created us um, 
with all kinds of different features, including different skin colors. And, right. he, and he also created us with um, different, you know, languages and, and things that we bring to the table that are different than, than different cultures. And, and with society the way that it is right now, we have beautiful melting pots like America, where we can um, stay true to our roots and, and our families and our culture, what we've come from within the United States, but also from our forefathers who didn't live in the United States. But then we also have these beautiful versions of where we meld together and we, we take on different um, aspects of each other's cultures. So I believe God loves it all. Um, I believe most of you, the majority of you, probably 99.9% of you that are watching uh, or listening, you feel the same way. And you want to see um, our black brothers and sisters have the freedom to be fully themselves and feel like they, they are supported and they have every opportunity that, um, that frankly, white people have right now. So... Um, the last thing I wanted to say, and then I'm gonna gonna make way for you to jump in, and you've got a lot to say, um, is that I, I heard a, a conversation. It was a video of of Brian Houston from Hillsong, yeah. Hillsong Church and Bishop T. Jakes um, being interviewing each other and on the race topic, yeah. on the race topic specifically. And I don't know when we're gonna air this, but but it was in the height of the rioting and looting. And I believe kind of the backstory is there was a pastor, maybe it was several pastors, who had made an attempt, a white pastor had made an attempt to have a conversation like we're having right now. And he said some things that frankly were um, anywhere from awkward to defense, to um, offensive. He stepped on, he stepped on a line, he stepped on a landmine. Let's start right here again. He made some comments that um, were anywhere from awkward to just straight out offensive. And clearly his heart was in the right place. He had great intentions. And so um, T.D. Jakes was, was acknowledging that, but he was also acknowledging what was wrong with what he said. And, and something that T.D. Jakes said that was so significant to me, he, he made an analogy and he said, um, he said, this is kind of like marriage. When you're newly married, you are learning each other's language and you're learning each other's cues and and it's awkward. And the only time that marriage is truly in trouble, um, I'm not perfectly quoting him here, but the only time that marriage is truly in trouble is when the spouses stop talking. Right, essentially what you said. And he's saying, you know, we have to keep the conversation going as awkward as it can be as uncomfortable as, um, and, and give each other the freedom, the benefit of the doubt, and the freedom to make mistakes in the process. And so one of the things that we have asked of those that you're going to um, have access to the interviews that we're doing with some of our friends who are black, and we're, we'll have some interviews of um, white friends as well about the black racism issue, and we're asking them in these interviews to tell us. We're, we're saying, give us permission, give you permission to tell us if there's something that we just said or that we're focused on that um, is in any way offensive to you or just, just educate us. Tell us there's a better way to go after this or to see this, and we will talk through it. So anyway... Um, I want to specifically point out in what 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 I was saying, just thank you to you, Johnny, and your voice. You have written two specific things um, that are that are posts and blogs. You can find either on our Johnny and Elizabeth Inlow Facebook, or you can find them on our Restore Seven website um, under blogs. And they are um, actually the the first one is not on the blogs. The first one is. Uh, Black Lives Matter, 10 Self-Evident Truths. And that was so concise and powerful 
um, I thought it would be really cool if you have time to read yeah. those. And I have them here printed for you if you want to read them. And I'll and then, a comment that would help as well. Exactly. And then um, you did write a blog that's also on Facebook called A Greater Than Imagined Slavery is Ending. And I believe it's, it's not specifically about racism, but it's something that you wrote when all of the protesting was at its height, and maybe the protesting still continued once this is aired, but um, it was in the middle of June. And, and this blog provides context for the bigger picture. So we want to acknowledge that there, there is a bigger picture going on in America right now. We are literally contending for, um, for democracy in, in our nation right now. And the issue of racism that is very real is being used politically. Um, by, I don't believe necessarily one party or another specifically, it's, it's more sinister than that. So I don't know if you're going to get into that or all, at, at all or not, but I just wanted to say that's a good reference blog for, for you to go to if you want to understand the bigger picture. But that bigger picture, that being said, does not take away from the truth of the issue that is directly connected to what we as believers are contending for, which is the kingdom of God on earth. And we need our black brothers and sisters fully released into all that they were created to be and do without apology, without all the hurdles they presently have to jump over in order to be successful in life. So let's let you jump in here, all right. Mr. Wonderful. Well, you're Mrs. Wonderful, and thanks so much. Your kind words are amazing, and all you said there was a, a great setup for it. And I will maybe frame the narrative in, a, in, a, in another way, uh, not another way, it goes along with what Elizabeth's saying, but one of the reasons we're going to make mistakes and trip on things and hit landmines, uh, just because that's the way it is, is uh, when we're talking about race, is because there is not even unanimity of perception from the black side, African-American side. Again, and some prefer the African-American term, some prefer the black side. So, we're going to, we are going to step on some toes just by the fact that uh, it would be insulting even to say that all blacks think this way. Uh, we agree, all, all blacks, all black lives matter, but there are different perceptions and we will have, I don't even know them all. I know you can go on one side all the way from Sean King, and I don't even know if I'll say it's all the way at the other end, but there is over here, uh, very different is Candace Owens, and they both have a huge influence, huge following, even in the black uh, community. And so depending uh, who you align yourself closer, if you're more on this side or more on this side, um, we're going to say some things that are uh, that are agreeable to you. And But this is designed to be a kingdom discussion as well. This is designed to be uh, with people and for people whose first identity is in Christ. And, and we are not saying colorblindness, because as Elizabeth pointed out, I don't believe there's colorblindness in heaven. We're not genderblind or colorblind in, in heaven. There was a reason he made us the way we are, and when the scripture says in Christ there's neither male nor female, nor re, uh, Jew nor Gentile, etc., etc. It means that in the identity of Christ, those things become secondary. It doesn't mean we erase them. He would have made us all the same gender, the same color, if that's what he wanted. He obviously wants that, and part of it, it gives us an understanding where we will fulfill in greatest measure our role as ministers of reconciliation. And if you're a woman, Elizabeth has had to go through unique uh, processes of overcoming male chauvinism uh, in the church, and that's been a constant battle for her. She can uh, so identify with uh, trying to get the voice out and trying not to be belittled and all kinds of things um, that, again, many blacks will, will feel from everybody. She'll have it from her niche and specifically from, from the church. And so we all have these, these, uh, these important identities. And so we'll say whatever identity we have is important because from that posture we can become uh, these ministers of reconciliation, assisting in bringing the presence of God to earth, bringing solutions, 
uh, to bringing peacemaking among ourselves between us. And so that's, that's what our purpose is. It's, it's, it's to call upon those who are called by his name and say, hey, can we be in Christ first? And then can we be white or black or Hispanic or, or male or female or Chinese or whatever else it is? Can we be that secondarily? Having said that, we're going to focus primarily on the black uh, racism aspect of things and on, on um, seeing if we can come to some uh, reconciliation advances there. There's a time for everything. We know there are so many uh, Hispanics. I'm very connected to the Hispanic community. As many of you know, I was born and raised in Peru, South America. I lived there my first 18 years. In some ways, I, I, I can think that way more naturally. I'm aware of the offenses, the things they've had to overcome, the hurdles they've had to overcome in our nation. And um, as, as I was pointing out, as the, the, the females as well. But we have felt that this is a key time Elizabeth and I, and I think many of you, and I think there is a, a consensus that the issue of black and white race racism, um, race dynamics, uh, really needs to be improved. There's a grace from God to do so, and the church has to take the lead in it. And so if those who call themselves first by his name don't rise to the occasion, then you do allow the extremists on either, on either side. And, and I'm not claiming that the previous people I mentioned are the extremists, but you do allow the extremists to frame the narrative, and then you have chaos and all kinds of other things that can take place. So in that, you know, I want to mention briefly, um, Elizabeth talked about a post I had done where I, had, I think I called them 10 self-evident truths having to do with the Black Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter movement. And I think it's, it, it's a good framing for where we want to go in this initial uh, discussion. And again, to, to repeat what Elizabeth said, this is, a, this is an introductory uh, session on this. And we're, we're going to have ongoing discussions and interviews. And it's going to be black, white, black, and white together on all the other ones. And, um, and again, we have uh, a vested interest in this being something that uh, goes forward in a kingdom way. We have a son whom we've adopted. Who is black? We have our first grandson is well, he'll be called black, but he's a mix um, um, for sure. And we have nieces. I've I think performed ceremonies of three or four nieces and nephews that have married uh, blacks. And so I have um, uh, those that will uh, consider me Uncle Johnny. That uh, you know they they are called black. And so we're, we're familiar with this, and, and, and it's not just a, a distant thing. We did pastor uh, a church for 14, 15 years, and we had probably uh, 20% that were also uh, black. We got really connected to them. We just, um, I shouldn't say this, but I think they were our favorite uh, church members. And uh, we just love them, and, and uh, we have a natural rapport with them. And so I think, you know, in a way we're... Uh, we're ideally set up to um, to to be in this place of a, of a bridge, and we'll see. I think I don't want anybody who doesn't have that to say I can't be a bridge. I think it's in all of us uh, to begin to humble ourselves and begin be willing to to talk uh, along uh, these courageous conversations, as Elizabeth mentioned. So the ten uh, the ten self evident truths. I, I'll just repeat them and, and comment on, uh, on each one br briefly. Number one was, if black lives don't matter, all lives can't matter. And that goes into, again, the controversy, and there's ideas, well, there's black lives, there's blue lives, which are the, the cops and the policemen, and then all lives matter. And it's yes, 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 all lives, of course, matter. But the point is, if, uh, if black lives don't matter, then all lives don't matter. And, and we're going on, there's a reason it resonates so strongly in the black community, the term matter, because uh, that, that has registered with them, and, that, and they really aren't necessarily enthused with the organization, we'll get to that next, but to say black lives matter is when you've grown up with looks, thoughts, actions that tell you you don't matter. And again, you just have to hear from our, our black brothers and sisters, just how they've grown up. It's our You'll generation. You'll hear on these interviews. Yeah, it's yeah. our generation. It's our time. It's it's not this happened 200. Yeah, we know the stuff that happened 100 years ago and 200 years ago. 
and, and all that, and we can't go back and, and fix that. But there are matters that are, that are still before us, and there's a reason that, that resonated. Number two, I, I said, Black Lives Matter, the organization, is far from awesome. It is politically compromised, and so I understand that. So if you were going to turn this off because, wow, you said Black Lives Matter, there's a, a reaction anywhere from a reaction to overreaction from whites when there is a validating of the term Black Lives Matter. Well, even, again, some from the black community don't want to hear about that at all because it is a compromised organization. There is a connection with uh, not just Antifa, but socialism, communism, a whole agenda. It's, and it's, it's bad. It, the the funding is going, there's a direct connection that they've made to Soros, and um, but none of that, that that's, that's an opportunity for, for the enemy to win because he's claimed a battlefront and a narrative that should have been ours all along. Ours meaning those who care about people, those who care about democracy, those who care about true freedom and true equality. That was so key what you said there because it is in the vacuum or in the absence of the church being there, kingdom-minded, kingdom-identity people being in the gap there and working reconciliation, the enemy comes in and he takes advantage. He knows what's the perfect statement slogan. And, and so, and again, having said that, it's not... There's the statement, in fact, that's one of my points. Black lives, Black lives Matter is an awesome statement, and it's an awesome reality. They do. I would like to say, uh, I, I was, you know, I'd like to start a new movement. Black lives are awesome. More than just matter are awesome. But then, you know, the acronym would be BLAH, and that wouldn't be that good. So, <laughs> uh, so you know, save that for, for another time. But number four, systemic racism still exists. Now, this is one of the matters that makes, uh, it's an area of friction between blacks and whites because whites get angry and say, it doesn't exist. Tell me where it is. Some whites. Some. It's <laughs> very true. Everything is some. That's, that's, that's very good. We for sure can't generalize the black community and even less so uh, the, the white community. But there is, when there is anger that surfaces, it's like, show me. And, and they don't... Uh, they don't understand. Uh, partially they don't understand because, in fact, it hasn't been pointed out to them. And that becomes part of our assignment. An important assignment is to point that out and say, here, here's what it looks like, and here's where, where it is. If I could interject yeah. at that point. I think I'm going to generalize a little bit here. From, from my experience and what I've seen, we have done a decent job in most of the cities in America of, at least speaking of Christians, of coexisting as two different races, two different cultures, many, much of the time. There's been some good overlap. I think most white Christian Americans can check off the box. I have, I have a black friend, you know, and... Um, we can say that we've, we choose to watch movies that tell us about what the past was like, um, maybe even more recent movies about um, racism. Like, I was so impacted by The Hate You Give. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's like, you have to see that movie. Anyway, the 13th. The 13th. They're just, 13th they're, they're things that we can check off and say that we've done. But the issue that's greater is we've not gone to the next level of friendship and intimacy with our black friends to where we've made them feel safe and comfortable enough and given them literally permission tell me what it's like for you. We've made an assumption, which assumptions are really dangerous. We've made an assumption, I would say collectively, that they're okay. We're seeing enough black people arise and do well and, and do well economically and show up in politics and all that. And we had a black president. You know, we, we've like dismissed it and said, well, they must be okay. Well, I'm sorry, but go back to the analogy of a marriage if you start assuming that the other person is okay, especially men with women, <laughs> yeah. 
there's a time where you need to ask. You need to check it. You need to check on each other's hearts. And when you don't, it gets stuffed and pushed down and held in. And, and little resentments start creeping in. And it begins to affect relationships. So right under our noses, with people that we really do love and care about, they have experienced a different reality than we love and care about them. And right under our noses, they have continued to have to come up against these hurdles that we cannot even begin to relate to. I, I was listening to one of the women that we just interviewed who will be coming up in, in the series, and it was so hard not to just bawl crying listening to her. She's about my age, and she was talking about her her time growing up and how when her mom would put her on the bus and she'd have to go to the school far away, her parents weren't anywhere around. They were She was alone with this group of kids on the bus, and they would be shouted at. They would have things thrown at the bus. They would have... Um, water sprayed at the bus, called the N-word, like just just horrific. Like it sounded like it was back from the, the 60s or something, you know? And I had no idea. I had no idea that there were kids my age growing up. And I can list the traumas that I went through as a kid. And I can think now as a mom, like I would never allow my kids to grow up in that kind of situation. I would not choose that for them. They had no choice. The parents of these kids had no choice. This has happened right under our noses. Yeah. With people we do love and care about. It really has. Now, systemic racism, back to the terminology, because some systemic, some say, well, if it's systemic, it means it's through everything and it's not through everything. It, no, that's, this is, we're not going for a medical term. Uh, systemic means does it exist in the systems? Because... There's racism. Racism, period, is bad. And so, you know, I don't know how much bonus there is for systemic racism. But the way it is, the way that registers for me, again, there's a racism that we have heard about. And it's what they get from looks and words and some actions as you spoke. And those are things that just they're spur of the moment racism. And it means it's in the system in some way. And for some blacks, that may that may represent what you call systemic racism. For me, systemic racism is racism that's in the system. It's Versus not, in someone's heart. Yeah, because that's one of the points uh, I, I make moving forward. One of the lines is, um, of the 10 points, is racism cannot be legislated out of people's minds and hearts. And so if that's ever the ultimate goal, we can't. Right. You can Only, only God can do that. And right. so to say, no, I, I, I experience systemic racism because I can tell the way somebody looks at me. Well, that's, that's, we'll never really have a hurrah moment if that's what we're looking at. But if we can, and it's not a moving forward step that we can count on, but if we can eliminate it from systems themselves, and by systems we're talking about legislature, by procedures, by laws, there's police procedures. So, you know, you can, uh, we can just look at the, the big stories we, we know about and, and understand that whatever procedure that exists for policemen where you can put a knee on somebody's um, uh, throat should not exist. Chokeholds need to be um, anywhere from eliminated to greatly uh, reduced. And there's all kinds of police procedures. Yes, they're across the board for everyone, but they, the, the way they show up, it, it's in a, in, a, in a disproportionate measure it affects the black community. And so those kind of things, and then laws and ordinances, if you know the history of laws and ordinances, why laws of vagrancy, no vagrancy, um, laws of loitering, again, what what is that? It seems like you're hanging out. Uh, what's the difference in hanging out in your community and loitering in your community and being a, a, a vagrant there? And with that, there are, you know, begins... Um, it begins a process where uh, the black community can be harassed and then ultimately jailed for very tiny things such as that. And they do exist in laws, and they're not a reality that uh, white neighborhoods overall experience. Again, uh, there may be a one percentile uh, of, of white neighborhoods ac 
across the nation that experience that. There, there are very low um, um, poverty level, uh, in poverty level white uh, communities also that can say, hey, we, we, we experience that. But it disproportionately affects uh, blacks. And I won't get into all of them, but we'll just tell you it does exist. And it does exist in, in, uh, in measures... I need to tell you since we're on that. We're yeah, on. I do. And while you're looking at those notes, um, you mentioned just real quick a second ago, it's not a medical term. So you were talking about systemic racism and how typically the people that will, you know, not agree with that terminology, I think they're thinking of it in a medical way. So if a medical doctor says you have systemic whatever, it means it's throughout your entire body in all of your systems. So when we talk about systemic racism, we're talking about racism that exists in certain aspects of certain systems. And it could be on a big picture level, it could be in certain counties, certain cities, certain regions of the United States. So it's, it's in certain parts of the system. We love our police officers. Johnny and I are like, so into law enforcement. We're grateful for the way they lay their lives down for the black and white communities, um, all communities. There are unfortunately officers that are racist who have infiltrated a good um, career, you know, and they misrepresent, I believe, the majority of, of first responders and police officers. So I just wanted that to be said. Yeah, and follow that up. Part of even, uh, you know, good people, good officers, good policemen doing wrong things is by having procedures that are sent down to them, having um, pressures that they have right. to bow to in order to fulfill their role, not to get uh, anywhere from fired or they won't get promoted. And there are things particularly, I'll just briefly state it, that began in the 1980s. And there was this thing, called, this thing called community policing. And it was um, it went into high engagement strategy where you stop intentionally. There was this, thing, there was this idea that you're going to stop. You're going to get rid of the criminal element from your community if you harass them enough. And so in that, they began um, now looking at matters such as uh, arrests, stops, searches, and so you began to be rated for stops, searches, and arrests. And, and this, is what, uh, this is what the pressure from above, the mayors were putting pressure, pressure on the commissioners who were putting pressure on the captains, who were putting pressure uh, on, on the officers. And this is what would get you elected. And this would bring prison jobs and, uh, to your community. And state legislators were uh, bringing home to their suburban districts um, you know, what, what started in even uh, prison, uh, private prison corporations, and, and there was a degree of lobbying money that connected to it, of construction firms, and there began to be this whole um, money uh, component that began to be interchanged, in, in, intermixed with it all. A great business for all, and all you needed was an endless stream of jailable people. And so, of course, it created this incarceration explosion, and we found that, again, where you would go would go would be into the black community for these things. It was the easy place to make arrests for things like loitering and vagrancy and, and minor uh, drug deals. Obviously, there's greater drug deals as all, but as well. But part of the systemic uh, inconsistency you'll see is just the notion of how cocaine in white neighborhoods was considered, wow, this is just not good for you. And crack cocaine, there was much heavier sentencing. These are, you know, sometimes we'll try to bring all the list of these before you, but you need to know, uh, to keep saying it doesn't exist, even if, and I know some of the blacks and the black voices out there are saying it doesn't exist. It does exist. I have done the deep uh, research study. I have I have identified them. It would take me probably 30, 40 minutes. And that's well, probably you just have conversations like we've had in these interviews, and you hear people's experiences. You can't deny what someone's gone through. And so here's the reality. Most of the 21st century, um, 
the jail rate in America was 110 people per 100,000 population. Last year, remember, 110 per 100,000. Last year, that rate is 655 per 100,000. Six times the rate. That explosion of it going up has nothing to do with there being more crime. Crime is at its lowest level almost ever, and not because of that. This is directly caused by this high engagement strategy, by this engagement of community policing that white communities know almost nothing about because it was done uh, strictly in the black uh, communities. And so these are areas of, uh, these are areas that begin to reflect this, uh, this in inequity along these lines of, in, in, and so we call, we consider it black, uh, um, uh, what's this, systemic racism. One more here. Let me, let me stick this mm -hmm. in right here. So they found out, uh, this is a recent number, uh, you know, that the question comes out of it, do blacks commit 3.73 times as many marijuana offenses as whites? Because that's, they're being arrested at that level. And um, there is an understanding, for, this is real fresh and real, the COVID-19, do you understand that 80% of the summons for social distancing violations were given to blacks and Hispanics, 80%. And do we think that they're really... You know, out of it comes a narrative that they're the ones doing the, you know, well, don't do the crime, then you won't do the time. And there's this slogan that comes out in some variation of that. But it's not just that the crime's being done there. There is high engagement, high stops, uh, high arrest searches, stopping that's taking place where if it happened at that rate in white communities, it would equal, you could only guess what it, what it would do. We know that you know, drug use is effectively, in white America, an upscale white America. Drug use is effectively decriminalized, and the idea of strip searches and quality of life arrests are unknown. And yet, I think it was a recent year, in New York City, police strip searched, strip searched 100,000 people for misdemeanors, and a disproportionate percentage of that was black. Strip searching for misdemeanors. And the effect of that, first of all, just to point out, that is systemic racism. And the disproportionate percentage of that in the black community, it's not just that it's a wrong done to them at that point, but it's demeaning. It, it is harmful in the way it, it demeans them. They're often demeaned in front of their family, in front of their children, their friends. And so it exists. And so we, we don't want to continue this conversation acting like it doesn't. Now, because time is uh, is going quickly on this one, I'm going to run through the last ones quickly, but I see you wanting to make a comment. Yeah, I grew up in Atlanta, and I remember... Um, I wasn't aware of it at the time, but looking back, I remember thinking there are more police officers in downtown Atlanta where more black people live because there's more crime there. So you just automatically, subconsciously connect crime with black people. And what I'm hearing you say is that there was a specific time in our history where the way that we, um, our, our philosophy behind um, policing specifically was unfair to the black population. And it began to shift so that it produced mentalities in white people like mine. And do you think that, that it, it makes sense to me that just because there was a civil war and it became illegal to have slaves, you did not have all of a sudden, even several generations later, you did not have all of a sudden a whole clean population of whites who now all have racism removed from their hearts. Um, and I think that it went underground and it popped up in systems itself. Well, it's yes, and it's way more. The ripple of effect 
uh, of this is even way more than than what we're what we're saying, because there are there are matters social reengineering that took place from FDR days where they essentially financially rewarded um, having children out of wedlock, and when you do that to the poorest, when you do it to those on the economic bottom rung, when you incentivize them financially, essentially you're incentivizing them not to get married and have children that way. But yet, uh, and when you're at kind of the poverty, base poverty level, it's like, well, every child you have out of wedlock, uh, we will give you, uh, you know, we'll give you a little more, we'll give you a little more money. You are punishing uh, marriage. There could have been a way where they could have added that uh, benefit for um, being two home um, Two parents. Two parents, uh, yeah, two parents uh, for every child. And so the realities are, and again, that's a, that's a whole discussion going in there, but back in those years, it was on average, in FDR's day, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 75% of every black child born was born to two parents. It's now 25%. There's been a direct cause and effect, ripple effect of that, and so that leads to a whole other thing. There is a complaint. Well, what's the problem? The problem is there are no fathers. Fathers aren't claiming their children in the black uh, community. Well, when you yourself were fathered, and when there has been systemic racism that comes at you that breaks down your community anyway, in so many ways, um, how are you going to be really a father? The, the and you're under- more likely to get arrested and do jail time. There's more, the, the unemployment rate is 50%. You are the most unemployable niche of society at birth just because you're black skin and male. And so then you have the accumulation of these small drug charges added with loitering, vagrancy, disrespecting authority, whatever. And all of a sudden you have even just a little jail time and then you, if you were unemployable before then, then you have this thing called a record uh, that's on you. Often, again, not justifiably so. You have the weakest, the worst, the, the less economic, economic um, economized lawyering on your behalf. And so these things happen. And then we cannot say, why aren't you taking responsibility for your family and your wife? For those, you're, many of them in the inner city communities, are a, a father at the first time for, at the age of 15 or 16. If you are 15 or 16 and have no parent of your own, and you can, don't have a job, um, there's no way you're going to be properly a father. So again, that's, that's a, a mantra that comes out. The problem is fatherlessness. Yes, but it's what caused the fatherlessness. It didn't just come out innately from the black community. Family is very strong uh, matter uh, you can go back to Africa. Family, family is strong. It's a strong. It's not that family is a weak component in a traditional black uh, roots. It's very. If anything, it's stronger uh, um, than what would be in whites. And so that that came through. We'll say social engineering, tinkering. Um, we don't know how sinister the orchestration of that was, but there are so many matters that feed into this dynamic of the inner city being, uh, being such a difficult place. And it really is going to require, there's no way we can just uh, point fingers as white and say, hey, you need to take responsibility and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get it done. It's not going to happen. And it can't be uh, conversely being looked at, you need to fix this all. Uh, you know, it's a, that's part of, there's a, a group that's resenting whites thinking, that whites think they need to help them. We can do it on our own. We made it ourselves. Yeah, we had some extra hurdles, but we could do so. And so we're, we're learning to talk through these things. So I do need to hit these. Uh, um, I have five more points, I think, from the 10 points. I think this has been great conversation uh, for us. But I know we, were, uh, we, were, we had a, a basic goal of how long we wanted our first time to go, but we're going to be fine with it anyway. So here are the other ones. Um, I've laid out five of the self-evident truths around Black Lives Mattering, not the logo, the group, but the actual truth. And here's one of them. Solving present racial inequities is much more profitable than debating past generation inequities. 
And there's not, it's not that there's no point for it. And I think everybody needs that basic education. You need to be shocked at some point. What? That's what happened? What was the movie we just watched, I think, earlier in the year? Um, Harriet. Harriet. Yeah, it's just called Harriet, right? About Harriet Tubman. And, like, there should be no American that hasn't been exposed to uh, more than just that movie. But things like this, like, yeah, you need to be horrified at least once about what happened before and have that understanding. But rehashing that today and then trying to assess who has blamed um, or not blamed for for that, you know, it can become a losing proposition. You had Quakers back in that day, obviously all white, and they were the ones that were running the Underground Railroad, totally against slavery. They wouldn't have slaves. They fought, they lost their lives even in, in, in multiple instances for fighting for the blacks. So you can't have all whites are guilty because you're white. That's the same racism going in, in the other direction. And so, you know, I have a, my grandparents, they came from uh, Sweden in the late 1800s. And so, um, and they obviously weren't a part of anything. And so there's, there's, there can't be a reverse racism component to this thing. Again, that's why you just, it gets lost in no man's land and, and there's no gain. But there is an advantageousness of discussing today solving present racial inequities. That's where our energy needs to be. That's where our energy. There's a place uh, for conversation on that, but it does get complicated and it gets bogged down and it gets too many weeds and we have so many other places we can go to first. Okay, other four. Um, I mentioned racism cannot be legislated out of people's minds and hearts. The follow-up is racism can be legislated out of laws, systems, and procedures. That needs to be a focus. Um, what we're understanding, there's two components of this racial reconciliation. One is in understanding and hearing, and just hearing people's stories. Listen, ask questions. Well, just hearing brothers and sisters. So how do, have you ever experienced, just like, ask them, have you ever experienced racism, and what does it look like? You're going to be shocked at people that have been in church with you for years who just didn't tell you, what? And and, and so you need to, so there's an understanding component of being, of the, it doesn't fix everything at all. It doesn't fix systemic racism at all. But it brings be, it to the light. Well, and that's the first step. But it, it addressing it, anything. It heals a heart. You can see when we when we've been willing to listen to the stories that blacks have gone through, it touches them, it tenderizes them. And that's part of uh, the wound that's there. Is there's been no listening. And it educates us. And it educates right. It's edu Yes, good point. It educates us, and it ministers to them. But we want to go beyond that. We want to go beyond that. And to identify, uh, it's not just police procedures. Again, the policemen, as I was pointing out before, at the end of the day, if they get forced from above to do all these excess high engagement uh, maneuvers and stops, it is putting way too much pressure on them. And so they start acting like they live in a war zone and, and they over uh, weaponize themselves. And so they can't all be blamed for that. That Some of it is the system that they're having to perform, mm -hmm. they're having to manage. And so we want to be aware that becomes a key area where we could work together. And it'd be great if whites would initiate uh, some of the things like I've done is done studies of where it actually shows up, ask questions as well. But sometimes uh, um, it's not that easy to find that, but we want to find those and we want to identify them and we want to see them change. Three more, bitterness and unforgiveness it's never a good thing. So that just stands on its own. It's just, it's never a kingdom. Again, we're talking in a kingdom context as well. Uh, well, I understand some of we can understand people are bitter right and left. It is never, bitterness and unforgiveness is never a good thing. And particularly for sons and daughters of the king. Just leave it at that. It hurts the person who has it more than anything else. And this, if there's such a thing as a balancing statement to it, is the next one. Pure longing for justice is not bitterness and unforgiveness. That's right. So we want to understand that. For there to be a desire, a passion for justice. We named one of our daughters justice. We had a situation that needed justice. And it's it wasn't, um, we didn't desire any person in the mix of it to be sent to hell or whatever. 
But it was just, oh my goodness, God, we need to sense that you're... We need righteousness. Yeah. And, and the word justice is the same for the word righteousness. We need things to be put back in right standing. It's not vengeance. It's, it's a, a longing for things to be in righteousness. And that's the kingdom of God coming to earth. Yeah, it's, I like to say justice. Because people, what about mercy? Mercy is greater than justice. Well, I say justice is mercy on those who have been abused. Or those who've been stomped on in some in some way, and so it is mercy. We have to understand it's mercy, but it's where where the Lord is like He is taking special attention to those who have been uh, abased, abused, and He's like it's time for these to receive mercy. And in that mercy on those, sometimes the unrepentant um, do get the justice matter comes out. They're going to see their day of justice. Yeah, judgment comes on them, but it's it comes out of the Lord's heart. His heart, yeah, is always about caring and mercy. But in the mercy, there is that is a direct cause mm-hmm. and effect. So, and then number 10, it's where we started from and where we'll end with. Christians must lead the way by thinking Christ first. But Christians must lead the way. We'll put it that way. Christians must lead the way. Kingdom people, reformers. Uh, again, part of what we've learned, Elizabeth started talking about the seven mountains, God in every area of society. Part of this message is an understanding the value of uh, of God in society. That we have perhaps, you know, when it, when you come at, come to uh, processing your Christianity, thinking all God cares about is souls, it means all you have to do is have a relationship with the King, and that's the only thing that matters. But we understand that the King has a kingdom. He has his way of doing things. And when John the Baptist said, repent, the kingdom is here, it was Jesus who was here. When Jesus said, repent, the kingdom is here, it's how John announced Jesus, it's how Jesus announced himself. Who was here was the king. And Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his justice. If you understand that the original word in Spanish, y su justicia. Righteousness sounds like us, like good behavior. Seek first the kingdom of God and good behavior. No, seek first the kingdom of God and justice matters. And all these things shall be added to you. So you go, well, what's the priority? The king or his kingdom? Because it says you shall love the Lord your God above everything else. And the, the point is they come together. It's like a candy cane, the red and white. You cannot separate them. And that's where we've erred. That's where we've made a mistake. Where we've, we've promoted a king that doesn't necessarily come with a kingdom. He doesn't necessarily come with a reformed way of doing things. And we have systems that need to be reformed. And they will greatly assist in, in um, being instruments of uh, eliminating the racial tension that's there. There are, there are multiple ways to come at this. And this is our, our first conversation on it. And we, we hope you hang, hang with us and we hope you'll be courageous enough to stay in these courageous conversations and understand, you you know, it's easy. I just don't like that. I feel uncomfortable. We, that's the point. This was like husbands and wives. There's, yeah, I don't really want to have to talk this out. We have to talk it out because we have to flow together. We have to be together. There's life that's going to come from this. That's right. And so we have to, um, uh, we have to embrace processes that are our most, uh, are most fun to do. And so, uh, sorting through and talking through this, we've got to do, we've got to commit to it out of the right thing to do. And not just because it gives us goosebumps. We don't get laid out in the spirit and, and feel the glory of God and go, oh, it's, it's not that. It's a thing we must do um, for, for the sake of the kingdom and so that we don't keep experiencing these violent breakouts on earth as well. And love looks like something. Yeah. So for me to say that I love my brother or my sister and not actually stop and slow down long enough to address what is affecting yeah. my brother and sister, then I don't really in reality love them. And I'm certainly not representing the heart of the father to them. And um, I just wanted to, to say a couple of very concrete like takeaways First of all, I so appreciate the the prophetic revelation that you had, you wrote about it somewhere, about um, you feel that, and this so resonates with me, and I'm sure with many that are are a part of this, you feel 
that um, part of the reason why blacks have been experiencing so much trauma through the generations is because the enemy so doesn't want what God intrinsically put in that part of humanity to manifest and that aspect of himself that he put in them to manifest. That's so key. You know, uh, here in 2020, I think the word I wrote is, what is the devil, what is it, um, what is he so afraid of yeah. from blacks? And and because there's a point of this, it's beyond uh, when you, again, you get out of the forest and you see, or you get out of the trees and you see the forest, you go, wow, the enemy is really, he's been after them a long time. He's after them now. Even this year, 2020, the COVID-19, I won't go into all that, but it has hit the black community in a stronger way. And there are sinister reasons for that as well. And I hope that all comes out. Maybe we'll address that in another time. And the riots, um, it hit them worse. And you have the Antifa elements come in, but it's... it's the there was peaceful protesting that needed to happen, and they just hijacked it. Well, and it's their communities that are being, being affected. affected and yeah. burned down uh, primarily. Yeah. And so it's over and over, but yet we can see, it's almost like we can see, and I can see uh, prophetically, that there's something so powerful. I'm seeing these new voices. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing 50 uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s, but fully kingdom anointed, right. next level upgrade, yes. 2.0. He was amazing. Men but and women. Men, men and women. And, and, and these voices are, are happening uh, now, and they're going to be reconcilers, but they will, they, they will, they will be bold, and they will, uh, they will carry uh, such an impartation from heaven what they do. We were just discussing how in the last, seeming, to me it seemed like in the last year, all this anointed uh, next level black worshipers has come out. They were to Maverick City, City and Tribal and uh, Dante Bo, I think is his name. And I can't think of all, all the names, but I'm like, this is amazing. That's become kind of our favorite worship. We find ourselves, I think about 90% of the worship we're listening to is, is in the recent time has, has been, you know, with blacks at key places there. It's like, wow. There's a sound coming from them yes. as well. There's a passion. There's a everything, yeah. and and so this is this is so key. We want to recognize that there has been an assignment of the enemy against them, and and that the Lord again, it's a blessing for you. It is. It's a blessing for you. If you are black, you go. Yeah. Why is this? We've been picked on our whole life. There's a blessing. It means God trusted you enough. Again, we're saying our first identity is the in Christ kingdom. He made us, and he's like, okay, you're going to be female, you're going to be male, you're going to be white, you're going to be black, whatever. And so he knew the test that would add to your life by being whatever you were. But he knew he had put enough in you to turn that lemon into lemonade, to turn that mess into a message, to make something awesome of it. And so we believe we can really be part of, of seeing this major, major blessing uh, from heaven uh, be released upon not just the church, but on society. Just heard yesterday, I think, about Kanye West's uh, brand new album that he's, I think we call them albums, still not sure what we call them now, released. And they were talking about a major song. It was about Holy Spirit come and the blood is washed. Something about the blood washing things and the Holy Spirit come. It's like it's been so exciting to watch what's been going on in, in Kanye uh, West. And he's add that to these names and whatever else we're talking about. So we have a lot of love for uh, black America, black Africa, black everywhere. And we have a lot of love for all the races. Again, if you go to our, uh, particularly my side of the family, you go to our, our family reunion and we have about 120 people there. You get down to the next generations. Nobody would ever guess that Jack and Gladys Enloe, the, the kind of, the, they don't live anymore than my parents that they were white because it looks like the United Nations uh, down here. We have a mixture of, of everything, and it's so And awesome. that's where society is headed. I mean, they say that the younger part of our generation right now, by the time they're our age, that whites won't even be the majority anymore, yeah. which I think is beautiful. It's the heart of God. It's, it's, yeah. um, so I want to challenge you guys to keep 
this stirred in you. Keep this conversation going among yourselves, among your friends, um, at church. And I believe that there's some specific things we can even begin to research and figure out how we can help be a part of insisting on change. Like just off the top of my head, several quick things, concrete changes we can make. Juneteenth, this this should be a national holiday. Yeah. I didn't I had never heard of Juneteenth until this year. That's how disconnected I've been. And uh, maybe some of you can relate to that. But now that we know about it, we need to insist that it be made a national holiday. All the statues and the monuments that are wrongfully being torn down right now, what's a solution? A kingdom solution? We need to immediately start erecting new monuments and statues that make us look more like who we are now. We have way too many white monuments, and we need to have those for our forefathers, but that's not the full picture of America. It's not a correct representation. So what changes can we make in our cities and in our nation that reflect the honor that we should have and we do have for black America? Um, there are many heroes that are, that are black that should be honored. Let me just interject right there quickly, Elizabeth. It's like we went to the Oakland Cemetery in Atlanta, Georgia. And, you know, yeah, it gets controversial. We don't need statues of Lincoln and Washington and, 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 and brought down. But, you know, we're... We, we, let's make that more clear. We are for those statues staying up, not being torn down. Right. But going back to the Oakland Cemetery, for example, you have these huge monuments and statues of Confederate individuals and, and um, Confederate soldiers, but particularly the generals and the leaders. And then it's been pushed to a corner in the cemetery, the... Uh, All of the slave graves. The slave graves. It's like, wait a minute. It, you know, if it wasn't for the contradiction there of one versus the other, you'd say, okay, everybody, you know, you learn, you move forward. But it's, it strikes you. It hits you. And it's like, and we don't need to violently go about these things, but there should be some discussion and some voting on these matters. Absolutely. Uh, I, I think so. And I, don't, I think the issue with even that, that example of the Oakland Cemetery, is just that nobody's ever changed it. It makes sense because the, the women who just, you know, maybe a generation later who had lost their uh, sons, they erected these monuments to their kids who died in battle and, and the leaders of that. So um, we can do something about that now, like in a way that doesn't, there needs to be some creativity with it, but it, it, we can't allow it to stay like it is just because it started that way. Yeah. Um, and then another just quick thing, uh, and when we have these historical markers, we live here in the South, we live in Tennessee, and we've got these historical markers um, that tell about the Civil War and the battle was here and all these Confederate soldiers died here, etc. Well, one thing that they did that was creative in our city is they put up additional markers that actually um, tell the full story. They, they explain, um, you know, what was wrong and, and what was happening with the issue of slavery. They give the more full picture. It's a more accurate representation. And um, so the what last you're saying, concrete thing. What was real clear, what you're saying there, not everything needs to be removed, but maybe it contextualized and the story told and, that's, admitted, that's right. and admitted this was wrong because yes. if you have no evidence of it as well, then you stop having the prop there for instruction and education. And so... It's not that everything yet. We went to a home here in, in Nashville that was from somebody on the wrong side, but it's being used even by the tour guides to tell a story that doesn't validate, justify them. But it, on the other hand, we wouldn't want that home and property just destroyed as some, uh, you know, for, for some vindictive purpose because it can serve an education purpose That's right. if it's used correctly. That's right. And um, maybe another quick, easy change, relatively speaking, is that right now, um, only in predominantly African-American public schools do they teach African-American history. Our children 
need to grow up, all children need to grow up with an accurate historical understanding, which obviously includes African Americans. Well, it's American history. You cannot, uh, you cannot, it is our history. You can't, it's not just their history. It's our, so it's not properly covered. So that's a quick, easy way to begin addressing um, this issue. And the last thing, you know, the issue of the flag. Do we, do we honor the American flag? Yes, we honor the American flag. We need to redefine what that American flag stands for. And we need to make sure that our black brothers and sisters feel like it represents them as well. I love being a woman. And it took me a while to grow to that place. I love being feminine. I love who I am. And until everyone around me feels that way about themselves, it, something's wrong. Something still needs to be addressed. Until my black um, friends, and specifically I'll say my black African-American sisters, until they feel so happy that they genuinely, not like I'm having to talk myself into something, but until they genuinely feel, and again, I'm generalizing, but that, that they're happy that they are a black woman in America, that's when we know that racism has significantly been dealt with. That's when we will know. Well, we, in fact, did go longer than we thought, but it was, it was so good. And, um, I think with that, we're going to wrap up this opening, uh, this opening discussion that will allow us then to step into the series. Would you pray over the people that are that yes. are participating with us? Yes, Lord, we just thank you for this time in history. We thank you for the occasion that we have to live and and be able to represent you and your kingdom and to be ministers of reconciliation on earth. And Lord, yes. I just ask that everyone that would watch this would be. Uh, would be won over by that concept, the, the, the privilege of being sent from heaven to be a part of, uh, of restoring, of healing, of bridging the gap, of, of doing uh, something that hasn't been done uh, really at all in society. And, and so, Lord, we just, uh, we just look with anticipation and hope to the days ahead of us. We yes. thank you that the little measures that we do, such as this, the little measures of uh, the little uh, attempts at, at reconciliation and, and keeping a conversation going and identifying uh, true systemic racist matters, uh, that these things, you always uh, jump in. You always will outdo us 10 times, 100 times yeah. more than what we're doing yeah. as we will do just our little part. And so. We invite you in for that, Holy Spirit. We thank you for the help you're going to give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.